I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 7. We'll pick up where we left off a few weeks back. Verses 7 through 12, Romans 7. Verses 7 through 12. And this is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. A diverse church, and he's not writing them a systematic theology. However, he is instructing them in doctrine for life. Faith that has substance that affects how we live. This is a letter to Christians. This is a letter to you, church. And so let us read the word of God together and study it. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. And sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us pray together. Lord, when you speak, the earth trembles. Oh, Lord, you cast the heavenly host into the depths of the sea. Oh, Lord, you bring us low by the teaching of the scriptures under the honesty and the weight of who we really are in ourselves so that we can hear and receive and become the people whom you have really made us to be in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Lord, as we study your law, show us who we are. Show us who you are. Show us who Christ is. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. People have always struggled with rules. Always. It's never been an easy thing for creatures made in the image and the likeness of God to deal with directives, to wrestle with regulations. That starts all the way from the garden where the law was so simple. In fact, it was just one commandment alone. There's a reason why it was only one and not ten at that time, and it's because of the innocence and righteousness of the hearts of Adam and Eve as they were created. But yet there was 
one commandment, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was as simple as that. They didn't have a sin nature. They didn't have sinful flesh or delights or desires. It was just a simple commandment. Don't do this. Don't go eat of one tree in the midst of the garden. Rather be obedient to my word. You could take and eat of everything else, just not that one. We think also of Sinai as the people of Israel who have already fallen in Adam, who have seen the cleansing of all of the world by the hand of God in the flood in Noah, and then who themselves have had a father in the faith, Abraham, led into the land of promise, yet who themselves in sin because of their forebearer been led into bondage in Egypt. Those people were delivered by his hand. They were let out and God was in their midst. He didn't only tell them where to go, he showed them and in the day, what was he? Well, his image was as a column of smoke and in the evening, in the night, a blazing column of fire. And he fed them and he cared for them and he communed with them and he called Moses on Sinai's height and he gave him ten rules. The law. These ten words. And he's so holy, the appearance of Moses changed. And he comes and he's got these two tablets and as he descends the mountain to find the children of Israel round about its foot, what does he find? That before they had even heard the law of God, they had already begun to break the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And there they are. And in their hearts, not even knowing the law, they have transgressed it egregiously and wickedly. And they've become idolaters. And you may recall Moses and his anger over their sin. What does he do? He takes the commandments and he smashes them. We have never been good with rules You go on and you think forward in the history of Israel and you've got the people, the kingdom of Israel, forgetting about the law. So much so that they needed a reformer who happened to find the law written on scrolls, tucked into the wall of the temple. What does he do? Well, Josiah comes and he reads it to the people. And they hear it. They're convicted and brought under the weight of their sin. And they turn to the Lord in a life of holiness. But soon they forget it. And through generations, one after another after another, the leaders of the people of Israel more and more and more take them afield, away from the holy rules and laws and commandments of God to the point where God looks down on them, a people who have forgotten the law and have rejected it in its substance and even the appearance of obedience, they've become antinomians. And what does God do? Well, you know the story. He judges them, and he removes his word of blessing. It's as if the benediction is removed from the people. His face doesn't shine upon them. 
His grace isn't cast on them. They don't have peace. They have warfare. Moreover, his presence leaves them. And they don't know the countenance of his face. There's first an invading kingdom in the north. The Assyrians take the northern kingdom. And then there are invaders from the east. And the city is overwhelmed. And the temple is destroyed. And the people are taken in chains in exile in Babylon. And then they come back after some time because God is good and he doesn't abandon his people. Even the ones who forgot his law. And those children and grandchildren of the ones who had lived crazy and wild lives, irrespective of the law of God, they come back and they, they see that all of this is because of unholy living. And what do they do? Well, they reform How do they reform? They take the law and they read it. And then what happens in the hearts of the people is that whenever they hear the law, they look to it for security and they build all sorts of different fences and hedges around the law. They're terrified that if they for one second transgress the law in its letter, that what will happen? They'll be judged again and God will retract his presence from them again. And they'll be in the same mistake, in the same mess, in the same horrible state. And so they swing like a pendulum to the other end of things, way and more extreme than before. And and they find themselves in legalism. A people who remember the law and its letter, but have forgotten the law and its spirit. And that's where Paul finds the church. And that's the church where Jesus walks into. It's a church that has a heart that, yes, obeys very legally and very strictly. But in every sense, in the heart is cold and dead, unmoved by the testimony of the law to repentance. And so I said, people have always struggled with rules. Always. They struggle to keep it and would rather ignore it. They struggle to keep it and not make it their salvation and their God. And so whenever Paul writes, he writes to Christians who themselves struggle with this very thing. And Christians today even still struggle with this very thing. That's why the church, in all of its scandals, seems to have at its root a misunderstanding or denial of the morality that the Bible reveals within itself. That's where the scandal starts. By the time you get to states of apostasy where these statements about Jesus are made, it's way down the road of a life that is departed from any concern to live according to God's revealed will. And so Paul's been addressing that. And he's been teaching us about the character of the law and of the gospel. And Paul has said some shocking things. To people for whom the pendulum has swung hard to the right. And he's not concerned that it swing back hard to the left. But rather that like a thermometer that it land perfectly on the wonderful, beautiful testimony of the gospel of grace. And so I want us to concern ourselves with what Paul is teaching. And do our very best to understand the holy law, and our unholy hearts this morning. In verse 7a, the first half of the verse, we'll see what the law is not. 
what the law is not. In the second half of verse 7, 7b through 11, we will see how the law affects us. How the law affects us. And then in verse 12, we'll see what the law is. What the law is not, how the law affects us, what the law is. Very simple outline. And so in verse 7, we encounter Paul and he confronts his readers. He's confronting you and he's confronting me this morning. And he does so in a very Pauline way. He tosses a question at us. His questions often are, well, they're, they're sort of like trailheads, right? They're not always so profoundly clearly marked, but they have an arrow that points you in the direction. Verse 7, what then shall we say? He's got your attention. What then, then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he answers the question emphatically, by no means. And so that's the question that we need to be ourselves thinking about this morning. Is the law sin? Because he anticipates that's where our minds will go is we will consider what all he said about the gospel in the chapters of the book of Romans. And we're going to eventually get ourselves worked down into a place of falsehood where we find ourselves saying something that ought never to be said on the lips of any child of God, that the revealed will of God is itself sin. Is the law sin? Paul says, by no means. That's your answer. No But you might ask the question, you know, that sounds radical, but why would a person ever even ask this? And again, I want to reaffirm to you that this is not the historical position. It's not as if Israel and the Old Testament considered the law to be a sinful thing or a damaging thing. They either disregarded it altogether, they never outright denied its usefulness, even though they practically did. And then as it swung to the right into a legalism, they certainly never said it was sin. Instead, they said it was their salvation. So it's not the historical position of the Israelites or the people of God. But I want to encourage you that Paul anticipates that people might derive this misunderstanding from some of his shocking statements. We're not going to go everywhere in the book of Romans. They're all over his letters. I'm just going to point out a few of them. Some that are very contextually close to the verses that we have this morning. In chapter 6, verse 14, look. Look at it. You are not under law, but under grace. It's very clear. Chapter 7, verse 4. Just look back a couple verses. You also have died to the law... Through the body of Christ. Another shocking statement. Chapter 7, verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Yet another shocking statement. But maybe it's chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
And these are only a few of Paul's shocking statements in the book of Romans and only a few that directly regard the Ten Commandments, the law of God, his moral code for his people to live by. Just a couple of them. But friends, I want to encourage you in the same way that we've already seen. Throughout our study of Romans, it has been wildly clear that Paul is emphasizing our need to be free from the law's demands free from accountability to it for our salvation. He's never once called the law sin. He's never once derided the law as the author of sin or the reason why we would sin. You see, for Paul, there's not a deficiency in the law. There's a deficiency in ourselves. And you might now understand why a person might ask, is the law sin? And I think I've got an illustration that for some of you will be very understandable. All illustrations fall apart, forgive me for this, but try to follow at least in in part. Have any of you ever driven a manual car? Bigger question, have any of you ever taught anybody to drive a manual car, you know, with the stick shift? It's a terribly difficult thing. I'm going to tell my wife she's out of the room and this is a kind story, I think. When she was pregnant with Owen, we realized that we needed a new vehicle because we just didn't have enough seats in the car to put all the kids and all of that sort of thing. And it's much cheaper to have a manual car, so I was faced with the fact that I needed to either teach my wife how to drive a manual car or I needed to buy an automatic that was going to cost us a whole lot more. My dad said, son, don't do that. Not a wise idea. And so I find myself with Elise, pregnant, very pregnant, with Owen, and then Haddon and Benjamin, six and four in the back seat in some random field in a farm. And I'm telling her this is what the clutch does. You put it in, and then you change gears, and then you let it out, and you do it slowly so the car moves, and time and time again, it's hard. And the clutch would come out a little too quick. The car would stall and it would die. And clunk, clunk, again and again and again. And you're going nowhere and you're going nowhere quite fast. And it's really, you know, it's just a hard thing. And the kids are in the back and they're starting to wonder, is the car going to explode? I'm starting to wonder, is the car going to die? Elise is already way down the road. She thinks she's killed it all together. And she looked over at me and she said, Nick, there's something wrong with this car. The problem wasn't with the car, it was with the performance. And I love my wife, and I've done the same thing she did, so this is no criticism of her. The problem is not with the law. It's with us. The problem is not with the law of God. It is with us. Sin doesn't derive in the law, it derives in our hearts. And it may take up the law as a weapon to wield against our own souls. I do want to confront something, church. At times, we have this sort of mindset towards things that God has clearly, clearly endorsed in Scripture. Statements of biblical faith clearly endorsed in the Scripture. And doctrinal statements like creeds that directly and clearly reflect the teaching of Scripture. Simple creeds. 
And sometimes I'll hear from somebody, whether it's a reading of a creed or even the reading of the Ten Commandments that we read today or the Beatitudes, text of Scripture no less. Or maybe it's even people who come into our services and they think, wow, this is so well ordered. It's structured. It's formal. And the the complaint gets brought. Pastor, that's so formal. That's formalism and we jump off the cliff or pastor the creed those you know we jump off the cliff into that's going to be formalism or the same thing with the ten commandments or the beatitudes and christian i just want to tell you very simply there is nothing deficient in the truths of the bible stated clearly in the creeds there is nothing deficient or problematic in the law of god the ten commandments read by god's people or the beatitudes read again and again and again in the course of worship. There is nothing problematic or deficient in well-ordered, structured, biblical worship. Nothing. The problem's in us. And so what is the check to that? A war waged against a heart that would prefer to take what is holy and make it profane. You have to check your heart rather than throw out truth. You have to consider the character of God who has given you good gifts and be brought to repentance rather than a turning away from his revealed will. In the second part of verse 7 through 11, we see how the law affects us. And Paul then turns and touches on his own experience with the law. He's telling you a little bit of his story, his testimony. And he speaks to the usefulness of the law in the life of a Christian. How it affects us. And I want to tell you that in this point we've got a couple sub points. And I want to propose something to you first. Do any of you have a mirror in your home? I do. A couple of them. I don't really like looking in them. You may understand why that is. Do you have well-lit or well-lighted mirrors in your home? I do. My wife certainly enjoys using them for the daily course of preparing to go out and about. My little boys really like mirrors. There's something weird going on there. But I want to say to you this proposition. The law is like a well-lighted mirror. That's a proposition. And then there are two points of how the law affects us. If you want to go to it, two uses, you can call it that. Okay? If you want to go there, that's fine. And the first immediate use of the law is that it shows us what sin is. That's what Paul says in his own experience. Just look at it with me. Seven, the second part of the verse Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Let me encourage you, don't read this to mean if the law hadn't taught him to sin, he would never have sinned. That's not at all what is being said here. He's saying the law shined a light on his sin. It revealed it like a spade that digs And finds a decaying body in the soil of the earth. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
like it held it out to him. And he uses the example of the Tenth Commandment. Look at it. It's on the handout. The last of the commandments. You shall not covet. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. We have to think about this for a second. It's not only that he would not have known what sin was, he wouldn't have even known of this category of sin. What is coveting? It is wanting what belongs to somebody else. Now you start asking me to draw lines. Well, Pastor, I'd really like a lawnmower like my neighbor has. Is that coveting? I think it rises to a level. I think it's possible to be there and coveting and say, I want something like my neighbor's and then get in there. But I'm not interested to divide the law in that way and to kind of dig down. I think that's a a question of conscience. But Paul says, I would not have known what it was like or what coveting even was to want what my neighbor has. I would have never known that. Well, why is that? Well, if you look through the other laws, this one stands out. It's a little different. The first four, you shall have no other gods before me. You can ask yourself the question, am I bowing a knee to Baal? Am I worshiping other gods? Am I performing the acts of worship to foreign deities and false deities? And you can answer the question, well, I don't think I'm doing any of those things. So no, you shall not make any graven image. Well, have I done any of that? Am I worshiping idols? You can ask the question and from a performance perspective say simply, no, I haven't done that this week or maybe in my life. I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I'm not taking on the physical act of idolatry. You may go down, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you can ask yourself the question, have I done that? Have I spoken words that were heard that broke that law and you may say no and you can also ask of the fourth remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy am I doing that you can go down the checklist of how Sunday went last week and the week before and the week before that you shall not kill pretty simple did I kill anybody not this week not last week maybe not in my life have I honored my father and my mother that's a one that you can certainly check off you can examine You shall not commit adultery, same thing. You shall not steal, same thing. You shall not bear false witness, the same thing. What is an act of coveting? Well, it's in the heart. Coveting may make you steal, coveting may make you kill or do a whole world of other sins, but coveting is inward in its essence. Not to say any of the laws, other laws are not inward, but this one is particular and peculiar. The law is teaching Paul that sin is not a basic, bare keeping of the letter, but it is the keeping of the spirit of the law. The affections and the thoughts captive to God. That's what he's talking about. That the law of God showed him the depth and the perversity of sin. The law shows us what sin is. And then that second use of the law, it shows us our sinful state, verses 8 through 10. And this is where Paul gets very personal. Yet again, his own experience is then brought to the fore. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced where? In me. All kinds of covetousness. 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You see what he's saying? And you may say, well, some of that's confusing, Pastor. You've got to unpack it. I need some more uh, to go off of. But I think we can do that pretty simply. He's saying that the sinful heart of a person, your heart, my heart, his heart, in the face of the law, sees what? A command of holiness? He says it sees an opportunity to sin. As if we look at the Ten Commandments as we've read it out loud and that the heart of sinful man sees a ready-made strategy with built-in offenses to God. That if a rebel wants to know where to strike the Lord, where it offends him, bothers him, and in every way denies who he is, the sinful heart learns how to do that in the law. And that's a really dark thing. That what God made to be holy, we then take and pervert it to be profoundly unholy. But that's what Paul is saying. That sin seized the opportunity through the commandment and in his heart produced all kinds of covetousness. When he learned what coveting was, it wasn't that he learned how to do it, but that then his heart went to it. That the law didn't serve for him to be a sanctifying witness, but rather because of his sin, it ripped him apart. Paul goes on in verse 8 and he says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Is he saying that no man sinned before the law was given? No. He follows up in verse 9. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Remember I said that it's like a well-lighted mirror? The law is like a well-lighted mirror with a light that shines? Well, there's some of that here. That the law shows what really is. It's the most honest partner you'll ever have in life about who you are. If you're willing to hear what it has to say. It's going to tell you things about yourself that you just absolutely don't want to hear. That before you even heard the law or knew anything of the law, what did you think about you? You thought you were living. If you go and ask the unbeliever about themselves and you say, tell me about your life, do you know what the very first thing they're going to tell at least a minister? And if you start on the grounds of, hey, I'm a Christian, you say to somebody that's an unbeliever, well, tell me about you, about your character, what are they going to say? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And then they're going to list to you the very good things that they've done. They've done a bunch of different things. A lot of people define what good is in different ways. But they're going to tell you that they're a good person. They're going to think that they're alive. And then they're going to do what? Whenever they hear the testimony of the law, well, they're going to do exactly what you and what I experienced whenever we first heard the law of God. We're going to come to realize as we're staring in a mirror where the lights are finally on, That rather than a vibrant, beautiful, living face, that what's looking back at us is the decayed form of a person dead in sin. You once thought you were alive, but then you realize because of the testimony of the law that you're not living and you're not alive. There's not just a speck of dirt on your face. 
death. Paul's saying he thought he was a good man living well until the law helped him to see who he really was, a man dead in sin. And it's stark. And it's a profound contrast. But it's the truth. Not only did the law give his heart an opportunity to go farther and farther afield, but in himself the law didn't save what was intended for life only expressed to him death because the law said, keep these commandments perfectly lest you die. And what does the law have to say to the person apart from Christ who hasn't kept it? You don't only deserve death, you are dead. And if you'll ever live, you need a Savior. It shows us our sinful state. And you say, Pastor, that's really tough. That's really hard. That's a really negative thing. I like positive things. I live in a world that's negative enough. There's war. There's hunger. There's division. There's genocide on this earth. You're telling me that? I'm telling you, friends, apart from a Savior, there's no hope. I'm also telling you, friends, there is a Savior freely offered to you. I'm telling you, yes, you're now dead, but there is one who is living and who gives life to the dead. I'm telling you that, yes, you have been in the grave, and there's one who also was in the grave, and he left death in it and walked forward in life, and he offers it to you by faith. There's a phrase that goes around in the American South, the Bible Belt, And it goes like this. If you're ever going to do evangelism, you've got to first convince a person they're lost so that they can then come to know Christ and be saved. There's something of that here in the law. But it has a distinct and distinguishable testimony about who we are, and it's not a very kind one, but it points to one who is kind and who is merciful and who is abundant in grace mercy compassion, and life. In verse 12, we then see what the law is. I told you what the law isn't. It's not evil, not wicked. What is the law then? Because that's exactly where Paul goes. He doesn't stop off for a quick drink or anything like that. Verse 12, right on the edge of telling you the bad news. <laughs> he says, so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And you see, Paul knows what it is. He's got people that don't like him. He's a preacher that preaches unpopular sermons. He preaches on sin. He preaches on the law. And he doesn't mince words. And all of his different detractors said the same thing of him that they did of Jesus. They accused him of denying the law, of being unholy, and of saying that the things that God has given are not good. And so Paul is so clear. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good and what Paul is doing is he is just almost quoting the Psalms do you know the Psalms the songs of God's people in the Old Testament Psalm 19 verses 8 and 9 the precepts of the Lord are right 
rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119, 137, that's verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. So what is the law? Well, it's holy, it's righteous, it is good, and you and I should believe that. Why? Well, there are two points, and it's firstly that it displays the character of God to us. The law is as holy and righteous and good as its author. God gives it to us as if he plucks out his own heart and holds it out to us beating with love, compassion, and holiness. He's saying, look at me in my character. I want you, my image bearers, to be like me, and this is what I'm like, the law. That's what he's saying. It holds out to you his character. The things that delight his heart. The things that he wants for us. As it were, rules for blessed living. Now that's indifferent of the perversion of our hearts, right? We already talked about that. We've already talked about also that we can't perform it. We need a savior. But don't ever think for one second that the law is not a depiction of the God who is a spirit and has not a body like men. Moreover, I want to encourage you, friends, that if you ever needed a picture of Jesus, you can look at the law. You say, hang on a second, Pastor. Well, I'm being clear with you. If I ask you the question, and this borders on idolatry, and even asking, what does Jesus look like? You're going to think some of you, brown hair, blue eyes, beard, well-trimmed. With some of the modern depictions of Jesus, maybe you even get it right that he's got brown eyes and a darker colored skin. He looks Israelite, this on and that on. And maybe even others of you think of crucifixes and stained glass and lots of different depictions of Jesus. But do you really want to know what the heart of Jesus looks like, what he acted like, what he was like to be around? Well, you just need to look at the law of God because that is what he kept in absolute obedience. In the letter and the spirit of the law. He worshipped the Lord. He didn't bow to any idol. He did not curse the name of the Lord, but only ever praised it. He always kept the Sabbath day, which was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, to rest unto the Lord and like a son to be in the house of his father. He honored his father in all that he did and he walked according to the words and the commandments of God. And he honored his mother even as he breathed his last on the cross. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And he gave her into the arms of John. You shall not kill even as he hung a man killed upon a cross. You shall not commit adultery a Christ that never once even looked at a woman in an impure way. You shall not steal a Christ that gave everything and took nothing. A Christ that never bore false witness, but was the truth incarnate in the flesh of a man and who never coveted, but offered freely all that he had that no man would want and not receive. Jesus is depicted in the law 
A more perfect and more pure picture than a Polaroid could offer to you. And it is wonderful to consider the law and to think on the law. The law does have a use for the Christian. But let me simply tell you this. It can't be your Savior, but it will point you to who He is. The law cannot save you, but it will tell you about the One who died for you. And it will fill out for you the whole of His picture as if when you get to the cross, having Moses ringing in your ears with a Decalogue, you see the one you've always known. That's why Paul doesn't cast it over his shoulder. He holds it near and dear to his heart, but he loves Jesus to whom it points. And so, brother and sister in Christ, I pray, I pray that God would help you grip these things in your heart so that you would know the God of heaven and know yourself better and also know the Savior that he has given you freely. And that you would receive him by faith, knowing that your own heart hasn't got a single hope in keeping a law that constantly says you've broken it. Would you know him by faith? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the text of Scripture. That you are a God who speaks and that you speak clearly. That, Lord, your illustrations never break down or get lost in obscurity, but your word is eternal. Oh, Father, we thank you that you made the word flesh. That word from all eternity who is with you who was God and is God, O oh Lord, that he dwelt in the midst of us and that you allowed us to behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. O oh Lord, help us to be people who would hate our sin and love our Savior. O oh Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.